0: Hmm. Recorded live. Hello? Yeah. Hey, we had started a, um, a Radio free Geneva last week, and we actually didn't end up getting into the primary material that we needed to get into. Uh, and that was responding to James McCarthy's sermon on, on Calvinism. Let me once again remember uh, uh, remind you that Radio Free Geneva is, uh, sometimes we have to deal with some, some really bad argumentation. Sometimes the people responding are, are, are just so far out in Looneyville that it's not even funny, and that's not what we're doing here. Uh, James McCarthy would be a brother in the Lord, uh, we have some differences here, and uh, we are responding to what those differences are. And I thought that there was enough unique uh, – so far there hasn't been any unique, you know, the class election type thing and in Christ and so on and so forth. We're looking at some things that we've looked at before, but especially into some of the specific texts, um, there was some – the approach is unique enough to allow us to think through another perspective, shall we say. And uh, so that's why we are – we are doing the Radio Free Geneva uh, today, and we'll, uh, we'll finish off. Uh, and it will be, for those of you who uh, are are concerned about this, looking at the clock, it will be a jumbo edition, especially because, well, there won't be any dividing lines next week. Well, of course, there's dividing lines all the time, 24-7 on the Wayback Machine, but there won't be any. You're not going to shut down the Wayback Machine, are you? No, the Calvinists are crying out. Well, it's <laughs> no dividing lines next week <laughs> how can that be yes indeed anyway so uh we were listening to uh, uh brother mccarthy talking about being in christ and uh, he was talking about you know why is it that grandparents love their grandchildren because those grandchildren are their children's children see and so if you're in christ then that's where that's coming from so let's uh Let's pick up, and hopefully I haven't turned the volume all the way down, let's pick up with uh, with what he was saying at that particular point and continue uh, our examination of his sermon. And I, I know you're a bunch, but frankly, God doesn't love you strictly for yourself. He loves you because of his son. Didn't the Lord Jesus teach us that that... What did he say? He said that the Father loves you. Why? Because you have loved me. I mean but God, don't you love just me? He goes, no, I I actually don't. You're actually kind of... I'm trying to figure out where that reference was. The Father has loved you because you have loved me? I'm not... um, I couldn't find that one. I'd like to know what text is being paraphrased at at that point, uh, because that would make the Father's love of us dependent upon something we're doing, and and, I... I, I think something was misstated there. I'm, I'm not sure. Selfish and sinful and lustful, but, but in your, my son who, who saved you, God loves you. And this is the amazing thing, that the God, the Father, has chosen us for himself in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, think about this theologically. He didn't have to do that. Could you be saved and not chosen by the Father for itself. Well, theoretically, I guess you could. I mean, if, if you look at Adam was up here, and then he sinned, and he, he was way down here, we could just get back up to the garden, and I mean, that'd be pretty good. I mean, you're not going to hell, you're living in paradise, and you're, you're God's creature. I mean, that's not so bad. That's, I, I'm not following this at all. I'll have to admit, at this point, I've completely lost... There, there would be no way to restore us to moral neutrality. That wouldn't bring about eternal life. How would that happen? If our sins are forgiven, you know, this, one of the things that concerns me about this concept is that if you are familiar with the subject of imputation and the discussion of imputation, then you know that it was, has has it been 10 years now? It's been at least, yeah, it's been 10 years now that um, there was a kerfluffle over in Southern California uh, where a, an individual wrote a paper opposing the concept of the imputation of the, the, the positive righteousness of Christ, that righteousness of which was his having perfectly lived God's law. The paper was opposed to the concept of the imputation of that righteousness to believers, based upon dispensational uh, reasoning, and it created quite a uh, quite a uh, um, stir. And then that was picked up by some new covenant guys, who likewise grabbed hold of this and were saying, no, there is not this positive imputation of the uh, this imputation of the positive righteousness of Christ. Uh, but there is only a, a forgiveness of the sins that have been committed, which takes us back to this moral neutral point. What? I, I consider that dangerous and I, I consider that to be uh, very, very problematic. So I'm not sure if that's what's in the, in the background of what's being said here. I really don't understand exactly what's being said here. Uh, we don't want to go back to Adam. We don't want to go back to the garden. Uh, the whole argument of Romans chapter 5 is that the free gift is not like the trespass, for by one man's sin, the many were, were made sinners, so much so by the righteousness of the one, the many were made righteous, one is the free gift, and it results in life to all those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's, a, there, there, there's something even greater that which is given in the second Adam, Christ, is much greater than what was lost in, uh, in, the, in the first Adam. So I, uh, I'm not sure if that's where he was going or not, but we'll see. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. We are down here, and now we're up here. We have been chosen as, as sons of God. Christ saved us, and now the Father has adopted us into his own family, and we're going to spend eternity in the presence of God, with the Lord Jesus. He didn't have to do that. He just, okay, you guys, it really caused a lot of trouble. Get back to the garden and stay out of my hair and we'll be okay. He could have done that. I'd, I'd be there in the garden going, that was a close one. I mean, I'm yeah. glad to be in the garden. But that is what happened. God the Father has chosen his first help. See, Just on a theoretical basis, I just I, that's very troubling to me. Maybe because I start with the fact that the Bible presents a God of purpose. And I believe that God had the purpose of electing a particular people in Christ Jesus unto salvation from the very start. That it's not a backup plan. It's not, well, that didn't work out too well. Let's try it this way. Um, maybe that's what is just causing me to go, Ooh, I just don't even like how this is being stated. I, I, I don't know. How many of you got saved by going to the Father? For salvation. You can't do it. You can't go directly to the Father. You have to go through the Son to the Father. Okay? There's... Yeah, I, I mean in the sense of the mediator, but never allow that truth to become imbalanced and, and be separated from the reality that the Father is the fountainhead of salvation. Now, it is His will, it is His decree that the way into His presence is only through one way. You know, there's, there's only been one way opened up into the holy place. Only one way through the veil, and that is the body of Jesus Christ. So you have to be in Him. There's no question about that. that but that is the result of His decree. That's His, His will to be that way. If there's no salvation in the Father. The salvation. Is in the Son. See, I I would never, ever, ever, ever say that, because salvation is a triune activity. Uh, I I would just, I would never say there's no salvation in the Father. Uh, the, the, The appropriate way of saying it is that the Father is the very fountainhead of salvation. The Son, by his ministry, accomplishes that salvation, and the Spirit, by his ministry, applies that salvation. I would never, ever say there is no salvation in the Father. We go to the Son for salvation to learn the great truth that God has chosen us in Him for Himself, that we've been invited into the family of God to receive every blessing in heavenly places in Christ, that, that God wants to make us co-heirs with Christ and dwell with the Holy Spirit and live with God in heaven forever. That's the good news. That's, that goes so far beyond, you know, are you saved? Did you escape hell? Yeah, I escaped hell, but... I, I mean, I just went right out through Eden and into heaven, and I got the whole thing. It's like, it's like you know, I was a pauper, and now I'm, I'm part of Bill's family, and, and I'm, I'm getting apartment buildings in Pacific Heights, and I'm going, how did, I, how did that happen? You know, what, I, what did I do to deserve that? Nothing. Now, I believe that's what verse, three, verse 4 teaches, that the Father has chosen us in him. Not apart from Him, the Father can't choose us apart from Him because there's no salvation apart from Him, is there? So, so you go back to you now. Maybe, maybe this isn't John Gowler. Now, now again, let, let's let's remember. Uh, basically, what's going on here is an attempt, as, as as I see it, to shift the emphasis of the text away from. The fact that you have the direct object of the choosing being personal. Remember Ephesians, we're talking about Ephesians 1 4. Just as he chose us in him. The direct object of the choosing is us. And that's personal. I don't believe there's any way in Ephesians 1 to make it impersonal. Because... Predestination is under what? Sonship. And what do you have then? Uh, Who is the we who has been chosen and predestined? The we then in verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, there are people who just want to make this, well, all it's talking about is just this this group. And God has predestined that there would be this group that will be in Christ. It's up to you who's in it. He doesn't choose. It's an impersonal thing. It's just a group. It's a, it, it could be a small group, big group. God's not really in charge of that. He does the best he can to get as many people in there as possible. But no one really knows. You know, he, he, technically, he, he could have just had a few. And once you get the group that he predestines, that if you're in the group, then you're going to be adopted. And then once you're in the group, then you can say you have forgiveness of sins and things like that. But you see, it's all meant to depersonalize the knowledge of God in eternity past and depersonalize the choice he made. He chose a group. He didn't choose you. This is one of those places where the you, it is a plural, Amos is plural, but this is one of the places where the plural would be taken as a collective plural. And hence, since it's a collective plural, there really can't be a personal application. Now, you've got to be really, really careful you start going down that road. Because if there's nothing in the context to take you to that conclusion, then how many other places in the New Testament do we have plurals used that we take as personal promises to us, that now you'd have to say, well, we're really not sure about that. I mean, there's all these other places where plural is, and, and maybe that's just the group. Maybe it's not me as an individual. You know, I, I, I don't know. Um, that's 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 troubling at that point. But this would certainly be the more extreme form of Calvinism that developed after Calvin, They're so adamant that what God did in the secret counsels of his will and his foreknowledge, he knew all individuals that would never be born. And he selected, apart from anything about them individually, that they would believe, that they would repent, that they would do that, apart from any of that. I would want to ask uh, Brother McCarthy, did God know? I mean, I, I don't get any feeling. Uh, that he's an open theist, which I find to be very consistent in Arminianism. But if you're not an open theist, then God did know, didn't he? And what's the basis of his knowing? I mean, is, is it, again, that passive taking in of knowledge? What is it? Um, I'm not sure that I communicated that last point with clarity that I that I wanted to. Uh, I really, really think there is a huge difference between an impersonal act of electing a nameless, faceless group and the incredible condescension that is seen in the Reformed understanding. And that is that what God has done is he has joined and elect people a specific elect people, fully knowing the depth of their sin and their depravity. He has joined them. He has foreknown them. When you look at foreknow, it's not to have merely to have knowledge of future events. It's always personal when God's the one doing it. It has been properly identified as foreloved. He extended mercy and grace and love to us, fully knowing who we are, even before we came into existence, by uniting us to his son. And that is the whole ground of our salvation. It's not a theoretical thing. The atonement's not a theoretical thing, it's a personal thing. I think there's all the world of difference between those perspectives. There really is. And um, so to, to liken it to just, ah, well, you, you, and you, and the rest of the hell. Um, I understand that that's what you'd expect from people who oppose Reformed theology, but if you really understand it, then you know it's a caricature and it's not accurate. Okay. It was a, 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 a sovereign, free choice of God, totally separate from anything we would do or be. to say that's impossible. Only God cannot choose you, Frank Blaze, for himself. He, 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 he can't you couldn't just walk into the president and say, "Yeah, oh, I like you. Come on in. If he could do that, what, is it, what, what do we need the cross for? Now, that illustrates a real fundamental misunderstanding of Reformed theology that hopefully even in the response we've given so far um, is very, very clear. And why do I say that? Well, why do you need the cross? The cross is part and parcel of the same decree. And those people that are united with Christ in death that is the very mechanism by which the triune God is being is being glorified and that's the the mechanism by which their sin is dealt with how how can you possibly think that there's some so, that the sovereignty of god's choice makes the cross of no effect or some secondary thing i, I don't even I don't even begin to understand that uh, clearly once again and, and and one thing we have certainly seen over and over and over again on Radio Free Genevieve those who oppose Reformed theology almost never accurately represent it. And here's an example. I mean, with all due respect to Brother McCarthy, um, that commentary just wasn't even close to uh, being, being on target. What do we need Christ for? If God is so sovereign, and that he could just have chosen who would be saved by his, his decree, what reformed person says that God is so sovereign? What, what does that mean? That, that's like saying so alive or so powerful or something. God is omnipotent. He has all power. He is totally sovereign over his creation, and he is sovereign over the mechanism by which he will glorify himself. And so, I, again, I, I don't even follow this this type of, of thinking that that he is so sovereign he can just choose well, of course he chooses it's part of the, it's part of his decree, but he he does so what reformed person does not see right there in the text and I'm pointing at my computer screen see right there in the text just as he shows us in him that there there are two parts of the, Intimately connected of his sovereign decree. It's the mechanism by which he will choose himself. He will choose to glorify himself. There's there's nothing about the sovereignty of the choice that separates it from the sovereignty of the method chosen to bring about his glorification. Uh, I, I think that's very important to see. Well, why the cross? I mean, that seems unnecessary. But, but you see, if, if I could, if I could pull out some photographs right now of a bunch of children, ages you know five to fifteen, and show them to Gene and say, Jean, my wife, the Lord has given me these pictures. You want to see what your grandchildren look like? Want to see the pictures of those girls could drew those, making those dresses for us? Yeah, I'd really love to see those. I mean, you, you love these children before they're even born because of your love for your children. This is what God has done for us in Christ. There is no. This, this word, chosen, just as He chose us, is, is, is from the Greek word, word from which we get the word elect. God has elected us, chosen us, selected us in Christ. Okay, not apart from Christ. He chose us in Him when, before the foundation of the world, here's what He chose us to be holy and blameless before Him. Now, how- now have you see exactly what I predicted was going to happen here? You have a direct object, just as he chose us. That gets rushed over. In him, and this whole, you know, foreign concept has been imported in him, so we've got this nameless, faceless group. And then, ah, uh, before, the before the foundation, this is an eternal choice. And I can see why the point of the choice, the temporal point, or in this case, logical point, if it's eternal, would be irrelevant if you're just talking about a group. But what makes Ephesians 1 4 so amazing is that even this next phrase cannot... This next phrase, evidently, Brother McCarthy doesn't see that it completely militates against his own interpretation. And you see why? Here's why. That we might be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, notice something. If you're looking at the Greek... If you're looking, and there's, we have a number of folks in the audience that will look at the original language. If you're looking at the Greek, you notice something. The hemas, kathos hemos, hemas, just he chose us and alto in him. Pra katabales kosmo before the foundation of the world. And then you have infinitive, einai hemas hagius, so that we might be holy and blameless before him in love. Now there's a question about whether you should attach in love to predestination, in the next verse, or whether it's continuing the thought here, but don't let that distract you for a moment. If the first Hamas is an impersonal group, do you really think the Apostle Paul was saying that it is an impersonal group that is made holy and blameless before him in love? How can you even discuss holiness and sanctification, holiness and blamelessness, holiness and purity, outside of a personal application? And so if the second Hamas is clearly personal, as it has to be in regards to holiness and blamelessness, holy and blameless before him. And if in love goes with this first verse, as it's divided here in the Messialan text, that even more emphasizes the reality that this is personal. Because in love this this standing before him this appearing before the father as objects of love is this love impersonal I just love that group I mean on one on one level you know I we mentioned that uh, I'm waiting to become a grandfather too and uh we we had the kids over for the holidays and it was great having them there but I imagine some comment was made at some point <laughs> um about yeah well, you guys have been married quite a while now haven't you you know and uh <clears throat> you know we always try to get a little something in there and uh talking about my son and my daughters only have married five months so uh, we'll give them a little time but uh I suppose there's a a sense in which you can say, I love my grandchildren. But they don't exist yet, and I'm not a timeless being. I'm not a timeless being. And while I will love my grandchildren because they are my children's children, it better better become much more than that once those kids are born. It, It needs to be love for them personally. As, as individuals. And so if this love here, we're talking about holiness, and sanctification, before him, in his presence, this is talking about personal relationship. And again, I'm saying, if you don't take these texts as Reformed theology has taken them, you have to depersonalize them. You have to depersonalize them. And I think you end up losing a lot in the process. How can you be holy and blameless before a holy God apart from Christ? Only in Christ is that possible. That's true. He predestined us. Okay. That's true, but notice that the, the element of verse 4, the personal nature, has been removed. And all the, the personal aspect has been thrown onto Christ, who of course is personal. How is it that we have holiness and blamelessness? By union with him. And that union is personal. He predetermined in advance. He predestined us to what? To adoption as sons. Now, now, wait a minute. Predetermined in advance or predestined? Because, you see, predetermined sounds like, um, I predetermined, Uh, that we are going to do a jumbo DL today, okay? But notice, again, looking at the Greek, take pathos out of the beginning of verse 4, which is connecting it back to 3, and both of these verses begin with a verb with God, the Father, as the one acting. And what comes immediately after each verb, the personal plural pronoun, hements. So it's the same group that was chosen. It's the same group that is going to be holy and blameless before him. And now it's that same group that is the direct object of the active verb of the Father. This is something the Father does. Oh, Twitter's an amazing thing. Guess what? My son's listening. <laughs> and uh, uh, he gives me some background information and says, when that's in progress, you'll get your grandkids. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Appreciate that. Hope you don't mind. There is a drawback to being the son of uh, James White, and that is uh, you get to be used as an illustration. But, hey. James McCarthy started it first, okay? He's the one that brought up the grandkids thing, and I'm much younger than him. So uh, I just had to get into it. (laughs) Anyways, make sure you see the parallelism. It's personal verse 4, and obviously verse 5 is personal as well. Predestined us unto sonship. By means of Dia Jesu Christu unto himself, it's all the actions of God the Father. He is actively doing all of these things. It's vital to see. Now, that that may sound to you like salvation, but that's not salvation. That's way beyond salvation. That may sound to you like salvation, but it's way beyond salvation. Adoption? I would say adoption is part of salvation. But the one thing, and this is very, why it's very important to see this, the one thing that you cannot possibly escape, you cannot possibly allow it to get by, is that you can have adoption without salvation. Without salvation. That's very, very important. If... We have been predestined. See, this is, what, this is where these folks want to go. Well, this predestination is impersonal, and it's a choice that God makes that all those who get themselves into Christ will be adopted, you see. Rather than what Paul actually says, he predestined, for the foundation of the world, same context here, He predestined us unto this intimate relationship of adoption into the very family of God by means of Jesus Christ for himself. Do you see the major difference between those two? There is a major difference. Norm Geisler doesn't get it, and Dave Hunt doesn't get it, and Aaron Cantor doesn't get it, but there's a major difference between those two readings. Huge difference. He doesn't say he predestined us to be saved. He doesn't say he predestined us to be forgiven of our sins. He predestined us to be adopted as sons. That's far better. That's far better? Again, can an unforgiven sinner be adopted in the family of God? Of course not. Can an unredeemed, unregenerate person experience sonship? It's it's all a part of what God has done. I mean, it's those who are holy and are blameless. He he makes his children holy and blameless. He he cleanses us in Christ Jesus. It's all at once. To try to start separating these things out and say, well, he doesn't say we're predestined to salvation. If adoption demands justification and calling, and holiness and regeneration, then you better believe it's saying we're predestined unto salvation. I mean, that's just as clear as it can be. It's amazing when people start trying to divide up the work of salvation and say, Oh, well, you know, he predestined us unto salvation unto this, but not unto that. It's all part and parcel of the same thing. What, what do you mean? How can you divide that up? It does not make any sense at all. And just being saved. And there's a few things that the scripture says that God has predetermined for those who are in Christ. One, right here, adoption of sons. He's also predetermined that we'd be conformed. And notice, what Paul says is, he predestined us unto this. Now that has been shifted over to, well, um, he predetermined adoption for those who are in Christ. Are those, are those synonymous phrases? No, they're not. Not in this system, they're not. So, predestined us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ of himself, and then you have the, the beautiful, I mean, verses, at the end of verse 5 and all of verse 6 is, I think, one of the ultimate answer texts in all of the New Testament. When people ask why, when people ask the why question according to the purpose, the good purpose, the kind intention of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, a regenerate heart finds that to be a sufficient answer to the why question a regenerate heart, finds that to be a sufficient answer to the why question. Formed the image of his son. He's also predetermined that we'd be co-heirs with Christ in heaven. In short, an inheritance with him. Nowhere does the scripture say he predetermined who would be saved. Now, I'm sorry, that that leap is so huge and it is so unfounded that we just have to say, that's just downright wrong. If all he's saying is, well, these specific words don't appear, well, then that's no more of the argument than we get from our Muslim friends that say, well, if Jesus never said, worship me, I am God. Uh, does the Bible reveal that Jesus is God, that we are to worship? Yes, it does. Does the Bible reveal that God's choice brings about all of our salvation from regeneration to the gift of faith, the gift of repentance, forgiveness of sins, union with Christ, adoption as, as sons of God, um, the, the justification, calling, all of it, it. Is that not what the Bible teaches is the entirety of God's work in bringing about the salvation of His people? Yes. Yes. So, you know, he made just brief allusion to Romans chapter 8 and predestination there. That includes everything. The calling, the justification, and the glorification. That would be like saying, God predestined us unto glorification, but he did not predestine the means by which we would get there. That is not even semi-logical or sensible or anything that would have suggested itself to someone who seriously listens to what the Apostle Paul is saying. It's just not there. But he's predetermined what those blessings are. I tell you, in our I think he's predetermined what the blessings are, but not who gets to have them. That's not what Ephesians 1.5 says. The direct object is us, not the blessings. Direct contradiction of the text. He's got to do it, because, folks, the Bible teaches, reform theology. That's why we believe it. But when you have traditions, when you have these, and whether and James McCarthy wants to do it or not, Got traditions, and his traditions just had him take himas and turn it into something completely different. It's no longer us who's being predestined. It's no longer personal. Now it's blessings. And see, we pointed this out with Norman Geisler. All these folks eventually have to don't read the text, but they eventually have to reinterpret that text. Away from what the words themselves in their original context meant. It's just got to be done. And now you're seeing it happen. In our linen closet, you has got all those dresses lined up. I don't know where she keeps the quilts. They're there somewhere. Those kids are predetermined to receive those gifts if and when they ever show up. They're theirs. Predetermined. What's predetermined? The gifts. Not the people. Impersonal. Not LaPaule. My friend... Still, it uh, was predetermined before, uh, I don't know, We could almost say before he was born, but certainly at that time his father had wills and contracts and living trust, that all this was going to go to him, predetermined, by the decree of his father. Now, I propose that if you stick to Scripture, nowhere does the Scripture teach that God's predetermined who will be saved and who will not. There a verse in the Bible that says, I would suppose you, there isn't even a verse that says he's chosen anybody for salvation anywhere. So there you go, folks. There's the tradition kicking in. And, and I don't know, it, it's, it's hard for me to imagine how, with your Bible open to Ephesians 1 5, you can make that kind of statement. But there, behold the power of tradition. And Isn't that exactly the conversation that I had uh, 11 years ago, over 11 years ago, with Dave Hunt on KPXQ in Phoenix, and look what that resulted in. (laughs) At least two books, three books I could think of, at least three books, uh, came from just that one conversation where I said, Dave, that's your tradition. I have no tradition. I have no traditions, James. Now, I would like to think that James McCarthy realizes he does. But it is pretty amazing to me that you can have your Bible open to Ephesians 1.5 and say, well, it's not there. There's no, there's no predestination to salvation. It's just, that's just, that's predestination of blessings of sonship upon anybody who's in Christ Jesus. Well, that's not what it says. That's an impersonal reading of the text, and it is not what it says. In fact, if you take the strongest verses of Calvinism, I propose to you that every one of them is to take it out of context. Every single one of them. Now, um, you know, I played this at the beginning, uh, the, the last time, so you could hear what he was going to be saying. And I've read his book, and I would be more than willing to debate uh, the brother on this, because I really think if we get into the text, uh, that we would be able to demonstrate very, very clearly uh, that that is untrue. We're certainly seeing that with Ephesians 1. We're going to end up going to John 6, and in fact, as we go through each one of the texts that he will present, we will actually demonstrate that it's, it's Brother McCarthy who is removing the context for the sake of his tradition. And that's what we've seen many, many times before. I, I recently wrote an article. I can say if others here, you can, you, know, you can put on your website uh, a, 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 a sermon by um, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of the preachers on election. He's preaching on Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And he was, most, he was the prince of the preachers, the most eloquent preacher of all time. And from, from that verse, let's, let's go over and take a quick look at that verse, Second Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, Brett. Before we go there, let, let me just, because I think Ephesians 1 gets lost at this point. We, we didn't finish Ephesians 1. Didn't even get close to finishing Ephesians 1. Didn't even talk about according to, according to the riches of his grace. And it, it, there's so much more to be said there. I, I will submit to you that it is only Reformed exegete that can walk through Ephesians 1 and let the text speak for itself. If this is the first time I've ever done this program, you might be able to say, ah, well, you know, you're just, you know, that's, that's your tradition. But folks, we've been doing this for years now. And how many times have we heard these accusations coming from all sorts of different angles? And we go into the text and we ask the questions, really, let's see. And over and over again, what do we find? Just the exact opposite. We find Reformed theology being established, the tax upon it either being shown to be based on straw men, or just utterly misrepresenting the text. And that's what we just saw in Ephesians 1.5. And if we had kept going, we could have just kept building the crescendo of what that text was actually talking about. I mean, are we really supposed to believe that when it says, according to, to the, the kind intention of his will, that all that was was, well, God just chose great blessings for people who decide to get into Jesus. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he graced us in the Beloved One, do you really want to make that us impersonal? I mean, we could just keep going. Uh, was Ephesians 1. I think it makes sense that you don't keep going with Ephesians one. Okay, let's uh, let's listen to what uh, Mr. Harvey has to say about Second Thessalonians two thirteen. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Again, if you're steeped in Calvinism, you're going, Well I mean, how clear could you say it? Right there, you're chosen from the beginning for salvation. You know, you know, I don't think you have to be steeped in Calvinism, <laughs> um, but we are debtors. We ought uh, a Philo, a is the term there, uh, to give thanks. you a stein, a beautiful word that unfortunately has been stolen from us by its constant misuse in Romanism, but uh, Eucharist is a beautiful, beautiful word as long as you realize that it means Thanksgiving uh, and not a uh, semi-pagan uh, practice you could assign to give thanks so they owe to God always Ponte de in behalf of you why adelpoi egamenoi brethren beloved by the lord now that particular form that is used there emphasizes something for us about the fact that the the reason for giving thanks is going to be stated, there's a hati clause here because it will be told why that is, but in describing them as beloved of the Lord, that love is is distinguishes them from others. And I, I've been having a little bit of a A Twitter back and forth with a a a guy named Air One Dave, and I don't know anything about Air One Dave. I just happened to see a uh, a message from him. It was sent to uh, Lecrae and some others, and saying love your music, but I just I'm just not down with your Calvinism. And then for some reason he put John Piper and me, our Twitter thing. So we make sure to see this. So obviously he was looking for commentary, and so we've been going back and forth a little bit. And one of the things I've tried to point out, and it's very difficult doing a back and forth debate in 140 characters. For some reason, my version of TweetDeck won't let me do longer updates anymore. And I downloaded the new version of it, and the new version is horrible in comparison to the old version, so I immediately deleted it and went back to what I had. But anyway, one of the things I've been trying to get this fellow to see is that, like Dave Hunt's, he demands that God's love have no differentiation. Unlike man's love, we, we can differentiate between the objects of our love. But not God. No, not God. He's, he can't do that. What does it mean, beloved by the Lord? brethren beloved by the Lord. Isn't everybody beloved by the Lord? If you believe in this non-distinction of God's love that's just like peanut butter, you just spread it all over the place. Then how do you explain this phrase, brethren, beloved, Lord, that doesn't tell you who it is. I mean, really, honestly, if you're going to take that perspective, it, couldn't this be written to the Roman Senate in that day? Because they were beloved by the Lord, right? Couldn't this be written to the high priests of, of Moloch or, uh, or something like that? Just the same? No, there's something special here. I mean, when it talks about the, the disciple whom the Lord loved, is that just nonsense language? Is that nonsense language? For those who refuse to admit that there are gradations and variations and decisions in God's love, that's nonsense language. He just loves everybody the same. No, he doesn't. And here we have the description. These Thessalonian believers are beloved. By the Lord. Beloved by the Lord. That would probably be especially in relationship to Christ's love for them. They're beloved by the Lord. And then why must the apostle give thanks? Because God chose you. Now there's a there's a textual variance here, and I I, I try to remember, we'll find out here in a moment. I apologize if uh, I don't remember the specifics, but there's a, uh, of the sermon, there's a textual variant here that does impact uh, the reading. Um, You have either ap arcane or ap arcase. There's basically one letter difference uh, between the two. Up arcane would be chose you as first fruits, and up was so chose you from the beginning. And that obviously would impact uh, how you interpret the text. But there's one letter difference between the two. Now, what I was saying is I don't recall whether you bring this up. We will obviously find out together when I click on the start button again. You know in his, his entire sermon Charles Spurgeon didn't dedicate one word to the context of this verse not a single word and I want to propose to you if you just take it as a, apart from its context that is a good verse to prove Calvinism and there's, there's others but when you put it back into its context it doesn't say it what he makes it to say at all not at all. Look, look carefully at that verse. Uh, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, that's the of Christians, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, again, I want to say, if you, if you want a proof text to prove the five-point of Calvinism, That's a great... Okay, let me just stop for a moment. Let's let's take a look at the context. Um, The context before this is of those who refuse to love the truth. And it is a... Wow. uh, A strong text. We in verse 9, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Notice those who are perishing. Tois apalu menois. A standard phrase uh, used by Paul in 1 Corinthians, over again, sodomenois, those who are being saved. So with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but have pleasure in righteousness. So you have God's judgment here. You have God's judgment upon all who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now what you're going to hear here is an attempt to say, ah, this this has nothing to do with salvation because this is all in the end times. And it's a dispensational interpretation in light of the activity of Satan and in light of a theory about when this is going to take place and therefore can't have anything to do with salvation, because it actually doesn't have anything to do with the Thessalonians. But when you don't have that um, inappropriate addition, you will notice that after verse 14, you have, to this he called you to what? Could be salvation or be first fruits. Uh, uh, But it's always salvation, because... It's so, okay, Rheon is in either one, but either first fruits of salvation or chose you from the beginning for salvation. But salvation is right there by, by the sanctifying word of the Spirit and belief in the truth. If that's not salvation, folks, what on earth would the Apostle Paul be talking about? And then verse 14 makes it so clear. Unto which also he called you Kaleo. By means of the gospel. To this he calls you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the end of the 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 golden chain of redemption? Oh, glorification, calling, gospel. How can anyone who knows Pauline theology look at this and go, Ah not I ain't salvation. This is, this is where it gets a little concerning for me, to be perfectly honest with you, because if, if you can see, and, and you know what makes it even more concerning for me, is that James McCarthy deals with Roman Catholics. Why is this concerning? Because verse 15 is one of the most commonly cited texts of Roman Catholics. And if you're going to deal with verse 15, what is the strongest way to deal with verse 15? Keep it in this context. So the brothers stand firm and hold to the traditions you are taught by us, us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. What is that tradition? Stekate and Krataita in verse 15 are talking about standing in the gospel, not traditions about Mary, Immaculate Conceptions, papacies. Uh, the sacerdotal priests and all the rest of the mythology that Rome has developed over the years. The the tradition that he's talking about is the proclamation of the gospel that was in the written material that was presented, and in the preaching that they presented. And so, you want context? Yeah, context is all over this one, and context very clearly tells us that the Reformed interpretation has been correct all oh, well, along a verse. But uh, maybe somebody like to look at it. Do you see any problems with using this verse to to prove that God has uh, predetermined who will be saved and go to heaven and who go to hell? There, there's, there's some major problems with that verse. What is the context? Is this Now, this was in uh, Galatians, and Paul was talking about justification. And he's talking about who's... Who gets saved and who doesn't? Well, it's a be. It's a be an interesting verse. What the, con- the context is, the Thessalonians were all confused. They thought, in First Thessalonians, Paul had told them, listen, you guys are all concerned about the day of the Lord, the, the final judgment, the great tribulation. Listen, that's not going to happen until the apostasy comes first, the man of lawlessness is revealed, we're going to be taken off this earth and in the rapture, and, and, and none of that happens. So, so, don't be so upset that the day of judgment hasn't started. And then, then after he sent that letter, somebody said, well, Paul's changed his view. The day of the Lord's already upon us. The judgment started. And he writes Second Thessalonians, and says, well, I didn't say that. Somebody said that wasn't me. He said, that's not going to happen. We've we got major theological things that have to happen before the, that happens. And when it happens, the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. He's going to display himself as God. All are going to worship him. God is going to put a deluding influence upon the whole earth, and they're going to believe that which is a lie. But you Thessalonians, in contrast to that, you should give thanks. We give thanks to God for you, beloved, because God has chosen you for salvation, not to go through the tribulation, not to go through the delusion of the time of the Antichrist. God has chosen you from the beginning for deliverance, salvation, salvation, from the very beginning, the church is going to be raptured. It's not going through the tribulation. Whoa, 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 whoa. You see this? this salve- so, so we've just moved from God has chosen you for salvation by the sanctifying work of the spirit and belief, pistis, pistai, in the truth, by which he also called you by our gospel, to now, oh, you won't go to the tribulation. Wow. Okay. I know that there are some in the audience who really appreciate what we do, but you, you're you brought up in dispensationalism, and you're going, yeah, that's what I see. But can you step back far enough, just for a moment, disassociate yourself with that just a moment and look at that and, and go, wait a minute, if, if the Apostle Paul is talking about giving thanks to God, these, these are beloved by the Lord, and then you have choosing, you have, whether it's from, from the beginning or as first fruits, you have soterion, you have sanctification by the Spirit, the the normal word for belief in the truth truth of the gospel and and unto this you were called by our gospel and yet that's not really salvation all these terms that we can prove over and over again Paul uses in in completely soteriological context and he's not speaking soteriologically because of an eschatological theory you have really so that, that gets scary to me. That gets scary to me. That's where we really, really, really need to be thinking about some hermeneutics and context and things like that. That, that's 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 scary. He's chosen even the beginning for salvation. How? Through sanctification, through holy living, you're going to be delivered from those bad times, and through faith in... Wait, wait a minute. Even... Maybe, maybe, I don't know, I don't know what form dispensationalism the old I don't know there's so many different forms anymore, I can't keep track of them. but I know there are forms that say that certain people uh, I think there's a form my recollection is correct anyways there's a form that says that, you know, if you're going to be saved in the tribulation or through the tribulation or from the tribulation, it's going to be your, by your good works because it's no longer by grace because the spirit has been removed. Isn't that true? Isn't it? I don't, I don't think That's necessarily what he's saying, but there are people who take that view. Um, But really, the the, the sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth, this salvation, which is by sanctification of the spirit and belief, is by means that they're going to be delivered because they've been good people? That's what Paul's talking about in the truth, if you stick to Scripture. Now, you're not born again through sanctification. Where does the Bible teach that? Through holy living it can't be talking of eternal salvation. Whoa! Okay. Now we have sanctification being completely disconnected from regeneration, justification. It, it, see how many times the, the whole unitary, God-centered, glorious work of salvation has to be cut into little parts by the Armenian. And I'm not numbering Well, okay, by the synergists. You have to cut into little parts because here you have Paul giving thanks for these brethren beloved by the Lord. And he's giving thanks for them right then, not somewhere down the road, not somewhere in some eschatological situation. He's contrasting them who love the truth. Notice, notice the preceding verses said, oh, they, they refuse to love the truth. Therefore, God said, deluding influence them. What are these people? They have faith in the truth. They believe in the truth. Is that that because they were better than those other people? No. It's because God chose them from the beginning for salvation, and that choosing has worked itself out in the sanctifying work of the Spirit and believe in the truth. All that comes from God. Sanctification comes from God. Our faith in the truth comes from God. All of that is what they're called to by the gospel. The gospel calls us to repent and to believe. Who repents and believes? Does everybody have that capacity? I think Brother McCarthy would say, yes, everyone has that capacity. I say to you, according to the authority of the word of God in Romans chapter 8, those who are according to flesh cannot do what is pleasing in God's sight. Having faith and repentance is pleasing in God's sight. God has to make the first move. That's why it's all to his honor and glory. That's why it's always on our glory. And that's why you don't have to sit here and go, well, no one is saved by being sanctified, but no one's saved without it. And it's the work of God. And it's the Spirit who sets us apart, makes us holy, different than those that reject the truth and love their unrighteousness. That's the context. You want to talk about context here? Let's bring the context in. The context is not some eschatological theory. The context is there are people, Satan works in certain people, and he causes them to love a lie. They they refuse to love the truth. That's what he, who is he? He's the father of what? What did he do in the beginning? He lied. So he wants other people to do the same thing. But you see, there's a contrast, and Paul doesn't say, oh, but we ought to give thanks to you, brethren, because you are so much better than them. We give thanks to you, brethren, because you love the truth. No, we give thanks to God because he chose you from the beginning. It's God who gets the thanks, not the Thessalonians, because it's God that chose them from the beginning for salvation. And then he describes God's act by the spirit of sanctification and belief in the truth, unto which also he called you by our gospel, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, not because of anything in you, but because of God's calling. There's the context. It is all about salvation. And it is exactly the opposite of what James McCarthy says. And it again it concerns me because he has to deal with the same apologist that I'm dealing with. And you all have seen, if you go back, look at the look at the debate with Jerry Matics, Long Island, nineteen ninety six or seven, somewhere around there. And what did I do? In responding to Jerry's abuse of Second Thessalonians 2.15, I demonstrated that it's the gospel delivered in two ways, not some, some teaching about papacies and Marian dogmas and everything else. It's the gospel that we are to hold to that was delivered that way in, in Second Thessalonians 2.15 how could James McCarthy explain 2 2.15 if he had to go through some type of contorted explanation about eschatological theory that didn't develop until 1830 in the preceding verses? That's why it's important. That's why it's important. 18- plus.